Are you a current or future physician assistant wanting to learn more about finances? Then join me on this journey to become a PA the FI way. Hi, my name is Kat and I'm a practicing certified physician assistant who will be your host. It took me five years after I started practicing medicine as a PA to thoroughly dive into my personal finances after I discovered the concept of financial independence. I want to use what I have learned to help you avoid some of the financial mistakes that I have made while sharing some of the financial wins that I have had along the way. Join me as we discuss financial strategies to guide you to becoming a physician assistant on the way to financial independence. Welcome back, everyone, to the PA the FI Way podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and I'm really excited for today's episode because we have another guest on today's show. We have Bradley Clark, and he often goes by Brad, here to join us to talk about lots of particular questions that you'd want to ask a financial expert because he is one. So welcome to the show, Brad. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you very much. I'm I'm psyched to be here. Yeah. So would you mind starting by introducing yourself to the listeners and telling them a little bit more about yourself? Sure. So in my current profession, professional role, I own and operate a financial planning and investment management firm. I'm a certified financial planner, aka CFP, and my firm is fee only. And these this jargon matters, and maybe we'll get into that later. I, I have three kids and live in the seacoast of New Hampshire. And prior to this, I did all sorts of jobs in business. I was the publisher for The Motley Fool, and I studied modern portfolio theory at Stanford with a Nobel Prize winner. So I've been around this stuff for a long time. Very cool. That's a very interesting background. And you touched a little bit about this already with being a fee-only financial planner, but you're also a fiduciary financial planner. Please share what the term fiduciary means if any of the listeners aren't familiar and why they should likely consider working with a fiduciary-only financial planner if they would like a little bit more help with their finances, either now on the way to financial independence or once they're starting to near retirement. Makes sense. So in the financial advice industry, there are two different standards of care. There's a fiduciary standard and a suitability standard. The fiduciary standard is the higher standard, and it says that we as fiduciaries must put the client's best interest ahead of our own, which has got to be similar, if not the same, as what physician assistants are held to. What's weird is that in my industry, there's also a lower standard called a suitability standard, which simply says, as long as the product or strategy is addressing the need, it does not need to be a great product. It can be a high cost product. It can be a high commission product. It could have all sorts of other problems as long as it is suitable. So the suitability standard is quite is quite a bit lower, and I would certainly encourage anybody who ever wants to seek out advice to seek it out from somebody held to the fiduciary standard. Yeah, certainly it just means that your interest is in the best interest of the client that you're working with versus the interest of what's best for you as well. Yeah. 
and you've been a financial expert for many years, as you touched on, you have quite the background. What would be some generalized advice that you would have for PA listeners out there who are trying to build their wealth on the way to financial independence? Yeah, this is such a great question. So, so I mean, wealth building. I mean, some. Of, I think I've concluded that it's simple but not easy. And I think that's an, it's an incredibly important, important distinction. It's simple because the rules here are not hard to understand, but they can be hard to follow. So let's set aside for the second the idea of paying off debt and building up an emergency fund. Those are critically important, and I think maybe later in the podcast we can come back to those. In terms of building wealth, I mean, this this may sound very obvious, but the first thing to do is to live within your means. And so I think that means 20% of your uh, income should at least 20 to 25% should be used to do some combination of save for retirement, pay down debt, and build an emergency fund. If you have a kid, then at some point, some of that 25% could be plowed into a 529 plan, you know, for a kid. So, but 25% or 20%, I think, is the magic number. If you make 125, we're talking about, you know, 25 grand is 20%, and 25% would be something higher than 20 that, you know, I don't have on the top of my head, but maybe 30 grand a year of, of that's available for these multiple goals of wealth building and debt payoff and emergency fund and college, what have you. So 35 grand. So for the 35 grand, the question of what to do with it, and maybe we can get into what I call the savings waterfall, which how how do you decide how to prioritize where that money goes? And maybe we could defer that. But in the big picture, this is about owning a diversified set of stocks, presumably in the form of an index fund or an ETF with extremely low expenses, and then having the stomach and the discipline and the fortitude to let it ride, which means you crank the money in on a schedule, it's set it and forget it. If, the, if in a given year you're, you're down 25%, you actually do nothing. Uh, and if the next year you're up 20%, that's great. But you just let it ride. And then it, our, our global economy has this incredible way of rewarding people who are patient and keep plowing the money in. Uh, and so, so, so that I mean, that's the advice in a nutshell. Now it can get much more specific in terms of account types and optimization and all that stuff. Yeah, I think that especially this year and nowadays in the current setting that we're in, you need to have the stomach and patience and knowledge and be well informed about needing to write it out. I was able to finally convince my husband to open a Roth IRA and max that out, and he goes. Oh, this is down like six or eight hundred dollars from last year. What a ripoff! And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Has to be patient, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. And then you touched on the savings waterfall. So let's go into that a little bit more. What would you suggest would be a standard order of operations to prioritize contributing to and maxing out various retirement and investing accounts for people? And certainly this can't be financial advice for 
any particular person because you don't know their story or their details. But a lot of this information can be standard for a lot of people. Right. I think that's right. So what's challenging here is depending on where you are in your career, you may or may not still have student loans. You may or may not have built up an adequate emergency reserve. You may or may not have kids. So you may or may not be attacking 529 plans. So I think the best way to answer your question is let's assume some of that away for a moment. Okay, and then we'll we'll come back to it. So let's just let's just answer a narrower question, which is if you can save 20 or 25 percent of your salary, where should you put it from a wealth accumulation standpoint now? And then we can reach back in and override some of that by saying, hey, if you've got high interest student loans, that may end up taking priority over one or two of the things that I'm about to walk through. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Okay. So I'm going to assume $125,000 a year of compensation. I'm going to assume somebody who has a health savings account, but it's for an individual and not a family. Okay. So here, here are the notes that I've made. I think the first thing you do is participate in your 401k plan up until the point that you have received or locked down the full match from your employer. The next priority after the full match is to max out the health savings account. And the reason is that there is a triple tax advantage there that does not exist in any other account of any other type on the planet. It is actually a better retirement account than any other retirement account. And you simply take the money and move it from the bank side of the HSA into the investment side of the HSA and conceptualize this as an accumulation vehicle, and you pay your healthcare expenses out of pocket. When you're in your 70s or 80s, you can reimburse yourself for a lifetime of health expenses. By that time, there could be a couple hundred grand in this sucker or more, and you will have benefited from that triple tax advantage. Yeah. The third priority, I think, is tied between two. And you can do these in other order. I think the next priority is to go back to the 401k and keep going. And then the priority after that would be to hit a Roth IRA in addition to the, to the 401k. And then if, there, if you're still able to save, then I think it is goal-specific where you could be saving for retirement in a taxable environment or saving for college for your kid in a 529 environment. There is a famous saying, which I agree with, which is that you can borrow for education, but you cannot borrow for retirement. And it's kind of analogous to if you're on the flight and you see that video Put the mask on yourself before you stick it on the kid. And I think that there's an analogy here which is which is helpful. Okay. So I think I think that's a logical sequence of saving. Uh, I think what what complicates this is how do you then layer on top of that competing goals, like building up a an emergency fund or retiring student loans. That's where the, de the decisions get more 
nuanced. If the student, if you have three student loans and one is very high interest and two are low, then I would hit the match on the 401k in the HSA and then turn to knocking down that high interest student loan. And then I would come back over to the remaining 401k in the Roth, right? And then I would go back and hit the other student loans instead of saving in a taxable environment or a 529, right? So we kind of have to mesh the savings priorities with the competing priorities of paying down debt and building up emergency reserves. Yes, I agree. There are some people in the financial industry, you know, such as Dave Ramsey, that's all about pay off debt, pay off debt, pay off debt. But I think like you touched on, there are ways that you can be saving and investing for your future while you're paying off your current debt too. And that in the long term, they're very likely way more beneficial for you at that stage of your life. Yeah. So Ramsey is too black and white, right? It's it's all debt is evil. And I think in reality, there's good debt and bad debt. And mortgage debt is, histor- is historically good debt because it's secured and student loans. Some of that's good debt if the education, if the rate is low. So I don't think you can, I think Ramsey's stuff is too blunt and you need to stack up the interest rates and then you may need to make a more informed and nuanced decision than lumping 22% debt in the same category as 3% debt. Definitely. And I am a huge fan of HSAs as well. I absolutely love them. One of my favorite accounts out there. One thing I would add for the listeners too is, as you suggested, and you're wanting to pay your expenses out of pocket currently, and then be able to reimburse yourself down the road, it's really important that you save and keep track of a detailed itemized receipt so that you can reimburse yourself years to come down the road. And some people are suggesting doing both a paper copy, but also a digital copy backup in case there's you know a fire or something like that and you lose that copy. That makes sense. And then another thing that I wanted to touch on a little bit as well with that is it is hard to say, you know, whether to focus on maxing out your 401k or focus on maxing out your Roth IRA first, because the 401k has benefit of you're reducing your current taxable income. And then your Roth IRA is after tax dollars, but then you never get taxed on that money down the road. And I've heard some people say that it kind of depends upon your income for the year, whether you feel like you're in a lower tax bracket for your current lifetime career of working, or you feel like you'll be in a higher tax bracket down the road, or what would you suggest is kind of a quick and easy way that people can focus on trying to max out their Roth IRA first or their 401k first? Okay. Excellent question. Let me first point out that more and more and more 401ks have a Roth option. So it used to be that what you're saying is exactly right, that a 401k by definition receives pre-tax dollars. However, more and more and more 401k plans are offering a Roth option. So if you move money into the 401k, you can then decide on pre-tax versus Roth versus a combination. If you roll it in right in, within the 401k construct, even before you go out into a separate Roth IRA. Does that make sense? Yep. There's traditional okay. versus Roth, exactly. Within the 401k construct. 
Okay, so the question of whether your the preponderance of your savings should be pre-tax versus Roth, that is absolutely a tax bracket question. It's also, I would say it's two-thirds current tax bracket, one-third your point of view on a future tax bracket. And sure. so and so for what's interesting about our tax code is that the tax brackets are clustered. So you have a couple of very low rates like 10 and 12. You have a couple of intermediary rates like 22 and 24, and then three high rates, 32, 35, 37. If you're in 32 or 5 or 32, 5 or 7, it's a no-brainer that you, that that must be pre-tax dollars. If you're in 10 or 12, just starting out, for instance, that's Roth for sure. If you're 22 or 24, where I expect a lot of your listeners are going to be, you're kind of on the cusp where you could argue it doesn't matter, or you could argue that now you need to take a point of view on the bigger picture, which includes, uh, are you married? What does your husband or wife do? What do you think Congress will do with tax rates in the future? What are your career plans vis-a-vis -vis, uh, progress that would result in different tax rates? So that's where you need to, to take a point of view that will then help you choose you know, Roth versus pre-tax. I've also heard of the concept of tax diversification. So if you're in 22 or 24 and it's hard for you to decide, then just go 50-50. You can't be that wrong if you go 50-50. Yeah, I think 50-50 might be the answer for a lot of people. Or like you said, if they feel like that they're going to be cutting back on work or they know that they're in a current specialty right now where they don't make a lot, but that they plan on going into a higher income specialty down the road, then that can help them determine their choice at that point of their life. Absolutely right. And let's use a example to kind of break this down a little bit for the listeners. So let's say that a PA learns about financial independence five years out of school, and as you touched on, is earning about 125000 How do you feel like they could best allocate their money to invest, continue to pay down debt, and save with that number? Yeah, su that's a super good question. So, um, gosh. So, Let's do the invest part. So, so these are rough numbers. So let's assume you need to put in 5% of your base salary to get the full match. That's six grand. And let's assume you're an individual with the HSA, that's another roughly four grand. So that's 10. The remainderman of the 401k would be another you know, 13 or 14,000. Right? So now you're up to 20. And then a Roth is seven. Now you're at 27,000. And that's about 20 or 22% of that 125. And then anything left over is now into taxable or 529 or what have you. When we then overlay the debt question, it gets messy. So I actually am not a student loan expert, but my understanding is, you know, there is a relatively wide range of interest rates on student loans. Maybe you could help me understand, like in your in your experience with with physicians' assistants, what is that range? Is it three to nine? Is it five to ten? Like, what is the range of rates that people have on their portfolio of student loans? 
Sure. And it's probably different now than what it was when I was out of school too. So I don't know the exact number on that, but my suspicion would be probably anywhere between man three, I think is pretty optimistic on the low end. Maybe four would be a better optimistic number on the low end up to, yeah, maybe about nine or 10. Like you said, it kind of depends upon if they're still federal or if they have refinanced into personal and gotten a little bit better interest rate or things like that. Right. So what I, so the way to think about this is you just put your loans out in front of you, put them in a spreadsheet if you need to, sort them by a percentage rate. And let's say you got three of them and it's, you know, 10, six and four. I'm just making that up. So clearly you want to prioritize paying off the 10 and then the six and then the four. The question is, how do we meld this and prioritize this as against those other saving strategies? The match is just extra comp. So that is more valuable. I mean, that's worth ha- that's that's worth grabbing no matter what. Yep. Right? The triple tax advantage in the HSA is so good that I expect that's worth that's even a priority over and above retiring debt at, you know, 10 points. Once you get into the third priority, which is filling up the rest of the non-match Roth 401k or Roth IRA, then I think you toggle over to debt at 10 points and you really work on driving that sucker down. Once you've cleared that that debt and now all you're left with is six and four, then it becomes more interesting. And this has to do with your own judgment on the power of the stock market, you know, the uh, the power of kind of entrepreneurialism and risk taking over the rest of your lives around the value of equities. I mean, equities have traditionally produced an average of ten points a year. So, 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 right? So, so it so logically, if you're borrowing at six or four, it's likely that you can do better in the stock market at 10, but there's no guarantee. Sure. So I would knock down the 10 first right after the HSA. Then I would probably do some of these other things, then knock down the six. If somebody's lucky enough to have student loan paper at 4%, I think that's low enough that you just pay the minimums. Yeah, I think that Another layer to that is what your views are and your feelings are about debt as well. Some people absolutely hate debt and they just want to get rid of it because once it's gone, then they really can try to build and maximize their wealth even more. And it's a psychological thing too. But then others like you touched on don't mind a little bit of debt if they feel like that the market can outperform. So you'll find everyone in both camps and it just kind of depends upon what you feel like your perspectives are with your current situation, as well as your spouse too, if you are in a relationship. Sure. I think I agree with that. And then there are some PAs who are not W-2 employees, but rather independent contractors. And I personally am, am about to become one shortly here. So for those PAs who have to set up their own retirement accounts because they're not offered one through their workplace, what are some ideal options that they can focus on to maximize their retirement accounts? Right. I, I love this because if you go out in and in, in your own your your own boss, you got your own LLC, you're your own independent contractor, it brings with it all sorts of problems, but all sorts of opportunities, right? And one of the opportunities is a savings environment that allows you to do more. 
And that is a solo 401k, also known as an individual 401k, where you, the business owner, get to wear two hats. You can wear the employee hat and you can wear the employer hat. I won't get into all the math, but the bottom line is by wearing both hats, you can put a higher percentage of your income away into these tax favorable environments. So I think that's the the short answer from a kind of asset accumulation standpoint. Yeah, I'm personally very excited to look into a solo 401k option down the road as well. And I think that, like you said, there's a lot of benefit because you have the option to be able to put more away for retirement. So I'm looking forward to that for sure. And since this is a financial independence podcast, how do you think that the listeners should think about the overall concept of financial independence? I've given this a lot of thought, but I'm not a kind of fire expert, you know. Uh, So I would say, first of all, the definition is unique to the individual. I realize that's kind of a cop up, but I think that's critically important. Sure. I, I, my definition is. Financial independence means you you no longer need to earn income from work. And I maybe that's standard, maybe that isn't, but that's my definition. I think a lot of people are fixated on their number. Is it a million bucks? Is it two million bucks? And I understand the logic there. And that is one way to frame this, which is you figure out your number. When you get to your number, you declare victory on financial independence. What I do in my shop is I encourage, I force, if you will, my clients to arrange their spending into needs, wants, and wishes. And the premise here is that this is an exercise of planning under uncertainty. And so you may need to spend $5,000 a month to, to operate your core lifestyle. You may want to spend 30 grand a year on travel and eating out and charitable giving. You may wish to purchase a vacation home. But having the discipline to stratify that spending is very important because I think that granularity will then help translate into what financial independence actually means to you. And, and I think in that construct, I think a good definition is extreme levels of confidence in the ability to finance your needs, but less than extreme levels of confidence in the ability to finance your wants and wishes, right? It's still, you still could have confidence, but not extreme levels like, like you'd want, you know, with your needs. So said differently, we're constantly in this industry trying to understand people's risk tolerance. In actual fact, I think most of us are risk intolerant when it comes to our basic living expenses. And we're quite risk tolerant when it comes to our discretionary spending. And so I would challenge people that are thinking about financial independence to overlay that distinction and rerun their numbers. There's another nuance here, which is the idea of a buffer asset, which I've increasingly focused on in my own practice. Let's say you have 
you know, Sue and Sarah, who are both 45 and both the same in all respects, okay, except for one. Sue has $500,000 of equity in her home and Sarah rents. But in all other respects, they have the same aspirations for financial independence. Sue has something that Sarah doesn't have, which is a $500,000 buffer asset. The buffer asset is the equity in the home. What's interesting is, do people who are crunching their own numbers for financial independence bring in the equity in their home or do they not? And if they bring it in, how are they thinking about it? So the idea of, of how a buffer asset can contribute to a financial plan and to the idea of financial independence is very interesting. Yeah, definitely. That brings up a wonderful debate in the financial independence community where some people feel like they should completely leave out their mortgage and their home equity out of their calculation completely, whereas others like myself feel like that equity contributes to my overall net worth. So I keep it in there because we may or may not downsize in the future. We may or may not, you know, choose to rent or something like that. You you don't know what the future holds. So I think that the equity in your house can be contributed towards your net worth number when you're trying to calculate your financial independence number. However, there are some people that absolutely know that the house that they live in, they feel like they're going to want to be there for many, many years to come. And maybe in those cases that they decide not to include it in their number because they feel like they're not going to sell and take advantage of that equity. So there's another way that a buffer asset comes in. So so I tend to work with people who are approaching retirement, and I realize sure. that's a different kind of audience. However, when you get closer to retirement, one of the risks that comes in is how do I think about planning for the possibility of several hundred thousand dollars in long-term care expenses? So when you're sitting there crunching your financial independence number, do you just ignore the possibility that you're going to have to drop 600 grand into an Alzheimer's unit in your 80s? Do you just ignore it? Sure. My guess is most people ignore it. The reality is that Medicare does not cover that. So when I think about a buffer asset, I'm literally thinking about a buffer. So if the proverbial you-know-what hits the fan and there is half a million dollars of Alzheimer unit spending that Medicare is not covering, can you, in the form of a reverse mortgage or a home equity line of credit, access the equity in your home if you absolutely needed to? It's not clear to me that that level of thinking is coming into most people's financial independence calculation. Yeah, I think that is an excellent point and definitely something to consider when you're trying to figure out your numbers and also consider whether or not to be a homeowner versus a renter as well. Right. All right. Circling back a little bit to touch on the financial expert industry, the financial advising industry as well. We touched on how it's really important to work with a fiduciary financial planner. Could you please share with the listeners how you would suggest that a potential financial planner be vetted? What are some good questions that people could ask financial planners and financial experts to decide if they feel like that they're a good fit for them, but also if they truly are fiduciary in all aspects? Because some people can say they're fiduciary, but not 
really truthfully be in all aspects. So what are some good questions to try to vet people that you're thinking about working with? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. So you could ask 100 advisors this, you probably get 100 different answers. So some of these are yes, no, like, are you a fiduciary? Yes or no. Are you a CFP, certified financial planner? You know, yes or no. That's easy. Tell me all the ways that you get compensated. So, I, so that's interesting. If you, well, you could ask, are you CF? Are you fee only? If they say yes, you're done because that means the only way they get compensated is from you. Sure. If you say are you fee only and they say no, then you can ask the next question. Walk me through all the different forms of compensation that you get. Then there's a services question, right? There's two services out there at the end of the day. There's financial planning and there's investment management, and they're different. Some advisors offer a bundle of the two. Some advisors are financial planning only. Some advisors are investment management only. So you need to be very tough on that question. There's three flavors, financial planning, investment management, and the combo. Like in my firm, all I do is the combination. I don't unbundle my service. There's a bunch of people that are only do the investments, a bunch of people that will only do financial planning, and a bunch of people that would unbundle the service into both. So that's worth understanding. If all you want is financial planning, then the question, I guess, is are you shopping for a project, which is a one-off $2,000 financial plan, which you will go out and own and implement and maintain, or are you looking for a relationship? Sure. So so I think those are a great set of questions to get you started. Lastly, there's the question of beliefs. It's hard to change somebody's beliefs. So I would challenge anybody who's on your podcast to ask an advisor what they actually believe and to see if those beliefs are congruent with your own, if they are good, but if they're not, there will be friction, right? If their investment belief system, for instance, is incongruent with your own, then you really need to stay away. Yeah, that makes sense. I will see some patients where I'll talk with them about my view and perspective of prescribing certain meds and how I'm very conservative with certain types of meds versus others. And I'll say, you know, we might not be a good fit. And if that's how you feel, then I would suggest looking for another provider and try to say that in a very kind way. Whereas it's very important that you recognize that a lot of professionals out there you might not be a good fit for. So you need to figure out what their beliefs are, what their practice style is. And if you feel like that, you will jive. Otherwise, like you said, there'll be friction and it won't really work. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Very cool. Is there a relatively easy way that you could suggest that the listeners could find a CFP that's fiduciary to work with in their state or locally? Or do you feel like that it tends to be a lot of digging or referrals from other people? Or when people come to me and they're like, do you have someone that I would suggest, you know, it's kind of hard to say if they can work in all states or just kind of a good resource to try to find someone for people? Sure. Yeah. I'd be careful asking family and friends. It's okay to do, but recognize that if you ask a family and family member or a friend, 
sometimes we give referrals to validate our own decisions. So just because I like the guy doesn't actually mean he's acting in my best interest. So there's a huge difference between the strength of the relationship and and the personal affinity I feel versus their competence or their compensation model. So, uh, So I would take the family and friend referrals with a grain of salt. Sure. That doesn't mean not to do it, but just take them with a grain of salt. There are two networks or three networks of fee-only financial advisors that are the places to start. The first is NAPFA, which is a mouthful, N-A-P-F as in Frank A. That's the oldest network of about 2,000 fee-only advisors. You can search by zip code. The new kid on the block is XYPN, and XY stands for Gen X, Gen Y. These guys are very into the retainer model, so two or three hundred bucks a month for like a giant Netflix Netflix subscription for a retainer based or subscription based financial planning relationship. Now, if they're going to run your assets. It, they may then charge a percentage on top of that retainer. The third is less well-known called Garrett Planning Network, smaller. These guys have a lot of people that are willing to work on a per hour basis. And so that's interesting, but I used to be very intrigued by the per hour. And then I decided that it may not actually be best because if you go and buy a couple hours, but you really need five more, but you don't want to pay, and then you're not going to come back and ask for help. I actually think the retainer model or the project model might actually be better for your listeners. Um, But if you have people who are confident that they just want to shop kind of by the hour, you know, there are some advisors that are willing that are willing to do that. So NAPFA, XYPN, Garrett, all three are search engines and a decent place to start because at least, you know, they're all CFPs and all fiduciary and fee only. Very cool. Thank you so much for sharing those resources. I will plan to include those links in the show notes for today's episode for the listeners that are searching. And then, Brad, I've really enjoyed our conversation. You've touched on many invaluable points of information. So thank you so much for your time. If the listeners would like to reach out to you to connect with questions or things like that, how could they do so? Right. So my website is just my name, bradleyclark.com. Pretty simple. My firm is Clark Asset Management. As I said, my understanding is that your audience, you know, skews skews younger than my target audience. Having said that, there may be some overlap if, if for for those of for those of you who are approaching within the next three or five years financial independence. For those of you, heck, who may have parents who are retired or retiring soon. We are a wealth management shop. It's financial planning and investment management. Significant expertise in helping people shift 
from accumulation to the distribution phase and all of the risks and tax planning and details they have to navigate with. Even if you are not in our target market, I'm happy to respond to you know, emails or inquiries. The email address is bradley at bradleyclark.com. Very cool. I will include all of that information in the show notes as well. And then one other thing that if you'd like to touch on too, you've mentioned to me that you have authored some books. Do you feel like that there are some books that might be helpful for either the listeners or maybe perhaps as a Christmas gift coming up for their parents or something like that, that could be helpful for them? Right. So it's just one book and it's it's not published, but it will be published in January. It's called be the Bird, which admittedly does not sound like it has anything to do with finance. And it is a blend. It is part how-to guide for retirement income planning. It is part memoir, stories from my life and how they've changed my perspectives and made me a better planner. And it's part pop psychology. There's a lot of stuff in there about cognition and optimism and confidence. And I've decided at the end of the day that I sell services in financial planning and investment management, but the actual business I'm in is helping people achieve and maintain the feeling of relaxed confidence in their financial life. So at the end of the day, This is a book about relaxed confidence that, oh, by the way, has very strong architecture into uh, financial topics for people approaching retirement. This book will come out in January. If you have any interest, whether it's for yourself or a friend or a colleague or a parent, please do email me and I will get a a complimentary copy in your hands. Very cool. That's very generous of you. I think that it sounds like a really interesting book to check out, Working in Mental Health. I think that, like you said, there's a lot of psychological components to finance. So I think that book sounds very interesting. So thanks for sharing that. Sure. Well, thank you. Yeah. And thanks again, Brad, for joining me on the show today. I think it's been a really fun conversation and very informative. So thanks again. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope that you decide to continue to join me along this journey of becoming a PA the FI way. Please take a moment to press the subscribe button on the platform that you are listening to this on, but more importantly, consider sharing with another current or future PA that could benefit from the information that we reviewed in this episode. Take care and have a great rest of your day. Until next time.